Welcome to Strictly Anime, a podcast for anime reviews and discussions by casuals for casuals. My name is Courtney. And I am Carl. This is episode 20, and we're reviewing Great Pretender Part 1. As always, there'll be spoilers throughout this episode, so you've been warned. This is it. This is episode 20. Achievement unlocked. (laughs) It doesn't sound like a lot, but it kind of is a lot. I mean, we've Mm -hmm. been slowly doing this podcast thing we're still very much amateurs but i think 20 is a milestone for sure we've stuck through it i I had read that most podcasts taper off by like seven episodes so i think we're well past that i think it's a good sign (laughs) and there's a lot of improvements that we have now that we've reached episode 20 so a couple of exciting things that we want to share first off we've upgraded a few things um, hopefully we sound better. We sound more clear, maybe crispier. a little bit, yeah, a little crispier, maybe a little sexier. I don't know, what? but <laughs> but we got new equipment. We got new microphones. We got new equipment. We hopefully sound more professional, and I think we feel a little more professional. Do we? And more importantly, we have a new jingle. Yes, we do. So we've been using Supernute Ensemble's jingle for the first 19 episodes but the jingle that you hear at the beginning and end of this podcast is now created by yours truly through a lot of trial and error on GarageBand so hopefully you guys still enjoy the jingle who knows maybe I'll make a full version once I learn how to fully utilize GarageBand but yeah hey I think it turned out awesome it's just the right kind of vibe that we were going for and even better, it was made by one of our own, one of us, you in particular. <laughs> so I think that's mm-hmm. that's pretty special. Thanks. We also have a couple things that are um, on the horizon. Um, specifically, we are working with a graphic designer to have some logos made for our podcast, uh, both this podcast, uh, future podcasts, and just the the strictly series name brand or whatever you want to call it in general so that's really exciting we're, we're looking forward to deb- debuting those um in the coming weeks and we'll be hopefully debuting a website um, our goal is to have that up and running by the end of the year but either way that's coming soon so that you can connect with us better and, and learn a little bit more about us um, we are also on social media, so you can find us on Twitter at Strictly Series and on Instagram at The Strictly Series. Yes, it's two different handles, only because Twitter limited me to a certain number of characters and I couldn't put the the in there. So again, it's Twitter at Strictly Series and on Instagram at The Strictly Series. The. <laughs> and we'd love to get in touch with everyone. So. Please, if you're listening and you've wanted to share some thoughts, send us a message. Um, Let us know what you think about the anime that we've been reviewing or if you have any feedback in general on, you know, this this podcast or any future podcasts we have. We would love to hear from you. We're, again, still growing, still very new at this and and would love to um, hear what you have to say and take that into consideration to continue improving. Um, We're also... Hopefully, very much fingers crossed. I think we can we can manage this now, but looking to stick to a new schedule. So we're looking to, for Strictly Anime anyway, um, put out episodes every other Monday at 9 a.m. Central Time, starting with this episode. So from 20 on, please expect episodes every other Monday at 9 a.m. Central. And the last announcement that we have for you, which secretly but maybe not so secretly is my favorite announcement that i'm i'm very excited to share mm-hmm. is that we will be premiering another podcast still anime based still all about reviews and discussions but dedicated to my all-time favorite anime jojo's bizarre adventure so we will be premiering strictly jojo hopefully in in november more information to come soon um i think it'll pretty much be a similar format but we'll be doing in-depth reviews of each episode of jojo um probably same similar schedule every other monday most likely opposite mondays of strictly anime so please look forward to that i am so excited to be tackling this because it's been something we, we've talked about for a while now wanted to kind of feel things out with um strictly anime kind of get into the the rhythm and then you know debut this podcast and you did the math for if we were to do 
every single episode for Strictly JoJo. Like it would take us at least five years. So I don't know. I have to <laughs> let me let me go back and, and look at that. Let me let me crunch the numbers. Yeah, it, it is going to be a couple of years, I think. But I mean, no, that's plenty of content for all of you to to enjoy. Oh yeah, you know, for so. sure. And we could talk probably over multiple episodes just about one episode of JoJo. So yes, there's going to be plenty of content. I think it's going to be something that is a long term project that we're just. We're going to embrace and, and I'm going to love doing it because, again, it's it's my favorite show. Mm-hmm. And yeah, if we ever get, fingers crossed, part six, I'm sure we'll have even more content to talk about. So yeah, please look forward to Strictly JoJo. More information to be shared soon once we've kind of gotten our shit together. And then, uh, yeah, that's about it. So with that, let's jump into Great Pretender. So before we dive into our general thoughts around the show, um, I think think we want to approach this episode a bit differently change things up a bit so instead of going through great pretender episodically like we normally do with anime um, we'll take the same approach as the show itself by breaking things down case by case so overall thoughts on the show um i'll let you go first because i think i think this is a show that you seem to be pretty pretty excited about pretty keen about yeah um, I remember we were watching a YouTube video by Giguk, um, where he was kind of previewing the fall season of anime. Although it's, I don't want to say it's not been too expansive because of like all the pandemic stuff going on, but this was one show that stuck out to me. Um, obviously visually because of its unique animation style, but just also the story itself. Um, it's a Netflix original, which is kind of interesting along the same lines of Carolyn Tuesday, but I think this feels more like a gateway anime for Netflix users who maybe haven't watched anime and are looking to delve into something on the streaming service. Um, just cause it has that very, not relatable, but almost a, a plot that could cater to like Western tastes, I guess. I feel the same way. I That was one of my initial thoughts about the show is if you didn't tell me that it was a Netflix anime, I probably still could have reached the conclusion that this is very much catered toward a Western audience. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's still anime. like It still has those same vibes and everything, but I do pick up on those little bits the sometimes you know they, they plop some agenda in there and, and sometimes they I don't know if it's like the colloquialisms or the jokes or something about the the way it's written has that western feel to it so yeah it's it's very much a netflix anime in the sense that it'll probably cater a little bit more to the western audience than most other anime and i think along those lines i think the show almost not too subtly but it takes a lot of like cues and inspiration from i guess almost the the mecca of gateway anime cowboy bebop um which i i would consider that more of like a compliment than like a criticism um because the show still manages to be unique in its own way um and the other thing is that uh, along the lines of it being very western influenced i think the most obvious uh source of inspiration is uh catch me if you can uh by steven spielberg uh, again, the the plot is very similar to like the con artist trying to maneuver his way through the world. Um, even the the opening is not like a shot for shot, but like the style of it matches the opening credits for that movie. Um, and yeah, yeah, it's it's very unique. And you know, you always mention like what's his name, Edamame, whenever he like waddles <laughs> down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Edamame, I mean, hey, Edamame. either way, they, they call him Edamame. Yeah, he, when he waddles down the stairs in the opening credits. But yeah, that's just a very unique art style, kind of like 60s espionage crime films, that, that kind of aesthetic. Yeah, I feel like, yeah, I agree. I feel like that aesthetic is spot on for this show, but not only in the opening and in the ending, but in the, the actual show itself. The colors mm-hmm. um, are bright, but they're not very harsh. They're all very soft colors. And just the way they they animate um, the characters and, and the environments just feels very, I don't know, like 
like, like a vintage yeah like sort of. vintage meets like classy cool mm. again kind of like that bebop vibe of course bebop is much more like dark and moody um versus great pretender which again is kind of that that bright color scheme but yeah i, I think that agree i think it has bebop vibes i think it has catch me if you can vibes i think it's um while this type of storyline has certainly been done before i think it's unique to anime um i think there are other anime out there that have that um con man storyline but yeah i think this one's it's it's a fresh take at least from what we've seen over the last couple of seasons in anime and i'm really enjoying it i really like the the opening as well i think it fits great for this show both the song and the visuals um, the ending is great as well. At first I was confused as to why there was a cat and all these visuals that to me didn't seem like they fit quite as well as the opening. But then you explained afterward um, that those visuals are taken directly from Freddie Mercury's um, music video, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the ending is, the song is uh, like Great Pretender, um, which was first performed by The Platters. And then this is a rendition by Freddie Mercury, but a lot of the scenes with the cats were like scenes taken from his music video. Um, and I, I'll, I'll say, I'll be honest, I think the choice of ending song and even the credits gives the JoJo ending credits a run for their money. Because <laughs> um, like, you don't hear, like Great Pretender, have you heard that song before you started watching this show no (laughs) like for me like my dad is a big karaoke person so i i grew up knowing this song and for them to use it at the end of this show granted the show is called great pretender so there's an obvious connection there um but it just fits so well even if you listen to the lyrics closely it kind of thematically fits in with the premise so yeah i just Again, thought it was a great choice of song for the ending credits. That's fair. Because, I mean, you look at JoJo Part 3 and they've got Walk Like an Egyptian. You, you can't mm-hmm. get more direct, I guess, with, with that than Walk Like an Egyptian. So, no, I, I think it's a good fit. I agree. I think it's a, a great ending. Yeah, so I guess we can just go right into the synopsis for the show. As Courtney mentioned earlier, we're going to do this um, case by case instead of episodically and then kind of give our more of our general thoughts um, with each case. So to start off, Great Pretender is an original Japanese crime comedy anime television series produced by Witch Studio, directed by Hiro Kabaragi and written by Ryota Kosawa. The series' first three cases were released worldwide on Netflix in August 2020, followed by its fourth case scheduled for a November release. Case 1, which is titled Los Angeles Connection and takes place over five episodes, starts off with Makoto Edamame Edamura, who lives his life as Japan's greatest con artist. When he targets a French tourist, Laurent Thierry, but ends up getting conned by him in a turn of tables, Edamame tails him from Tokyo all the way to Los Angeles. There he gets involved in a scheme with San Laurent's partner, Abby Jones, to take down movie producer and drug drug kingpin Harvey Wan excuse me, Eddie Casano, with a fake hard candy drug called Sakura Magic. With a little bit of convincing, which involves hanging upside down from the Hollywood sign and self-reflecting on his rise or fall as a career con man, Edamame acquiesces and agrees to pose as the drug's inventor to produce it for Wannabe Weinstein for a hefty price. In the process, he befriends Wannabe Weinstein's right-hand man, Salazar, and becomes entangled in a power struggle between the LAPD and the FBI in order to take down both Wannabe Weinstein's drug network and Saint Laurent's gang of merry con men. On the day of the deal, Edamame goes through the motions of concocting Sakura magic until a SWAT team headed by FBI agent Paula Dickens crashes the party. Chaos ensues, and Saint Laurent and Krabby Abby are shot down. An enraged Edamame holds Paula at gunpoint and threatens to shoot her if they don't let him and Salazar go. Wannabe Weinstein sets off a well-timed explosion to cause more confusion and is close to beating the devil out of Edamame until Salazar intervenes. The FBI apprehends the three, but Paula agrees to let Wannabe Weinstein go with a $100 million bribe. Edamame is knocked unconscious before he can respond, but wakes up on a tropical island where it's revealed that Paula, real name Cynthia Moore, is part of San Laurent's crew, Team Confidence, 
and everything was staged in order to con wannabe Weinstein out of his wealth and throw him in jail for his crimes, allowing Salazar to give up his life of crime to focus on being a father. Once the festivities conclude, however, Edamame decides to make a fresh start and vows to live a legitimate life. He returns to Japan, turns himself in, and uses his share of the profits to compensate his former victims. So this first case is, um, I thought it was interesting. I was like, okay, I'm kind of captivated here, but not fully captivated. I'm like the whole drug game, not super exciting. But I think what really kind of caught my attention with this show is that whole sense of like, you never know who you can trust. At mm-hmm. least with this this first case in particular, because we're still getting introduced to a lot of the um, a lot of the characters, like even the the two people back in Japan, um, the woman and, and the guy that is like really close friends with Edamura. I don't know their names, but mm-hmm. even then, you think like, okay, they they must not know what's going on here, and then it's revealed later that they were all part of the plan. And then Cynthia too. I mean, for me, the biggest plot twist of the first case was the fact that Cynthia was actually part of their crew. I was fully convinced that she was that. FBI agent or, or whoever, um, Paula, I think you said. Paula, yeah, Paula Dickens. Yeah, that that she was actually part of um, part of the FBI and was actually trying to hunt them down. And at the end, they're like, nah, just kidding. She was actually part of the crew this whole time. I'm like, oh my God, okay, yeah, I, I got gotten with that one. Yeah, and I've mentioned this before, I think, in the podcast where I think the one thing I always see across a lot of animes is like there's always scheming. And like as you mentioned, there's just so much scheming in this first case that, again, you don't know who to trust or who's even telling the truth. Um, and what, when you mentioned the the lady and the guy, I think his name was Kudo, um, Sakura's partner, like con, art, con artist partner, um, the beginning, you don't realize, I think they were scamming that lady first, right? Yeah, like she was supposed that, yeah. to be like um, their their victim, but ends up not being a victim at all, but actually a part of the the whole plan. Yeah, so again, like you don't know who knows who, um, and then the reveal at the end of the case where it's like this whole—I don't know if you want to call it like crime syndicate, but again, to get that like Western reference, it it reminds me a lot of like John Wick's world building. You know how like there's that whole. Um, association of like hitmen and assassins um, and I think that's what they're trying to establish here is like there's this worldwide network of, of con artists that are um, targeting the rich um, kind of acting like Robin Hoods in a sense um, steal from the steal from the wealthy gift of the poor kind of kind of thing um, but yeah this this first case it's it starts off with a pretty big bang I would say I kind of had a feeling that Abigail was in on it. Something about like the way they introduced her and um, I don't know how willing she was to like try this new drug. Part of me was like, is she in on it? And then we find out pretty soon after that that she is on it, in on it. I was like, yeah, I kind of saw that one coming. But yeah, I, I think they did a really good job of of keeping us in the dark to give us those really great plot twists about these characters um, for, for this first case. And I think this first case in general, um, it this one in particular, I think of of the three cases that we've gotten, definitely caters to the Western audience. It's mm-hmm. a very timely, um, very uh, relevant case, I think, right. given some of the, the recent events in the last year or two. Um, but I think overall it was it was interesting and it was a great way to kind of set up this group, what they're all about, and also give us some good backstory about Enamura. Yeah, and um, to kind of go into that a little bit further um, with this case itself, going along with like the whole scheming thing, I think what I really liked about um, this case was that with the film producer, Casano, um, it always seems like he was one step ahead of the curve um, when it came to uh, Edamame's and Laurent's like plans for trying to con him out of his money. Um, and I think it's Edamame who kind of starts off with the lie of him being the pharmaceutical expert who has the formula for Sakura Magic and then Kasno just taking that and saying, okay, make this for me in a lab that I'm going to build here in L.A., and it's sort of like that lie just gets bigger and bigger and you 
you find you're like you're out in the edge of your seat trying to figure out how how is Edamame and, and Laurent how are they gonna get themselves out of this one um so that's one thing that I thought that the case paid off pretty well in the end I agree, although there were moments, especially as we got to that bigger buildup of like him building the lab for Edamora and then Edamora just happening to like figure out, you know, overnight, over a couple of nights, how to like concoct this drug just off of a video that he saw. Um, I think part of it, like the believability factor dipped a bit for me. Like, I don't get me wrong. I was certainly on the edge of my seat as well because I was like, how the fuck are they going to get out of this one? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it did a great job of showcasing Edamora's amateur but very strong skills as a con artist. But yeah, there are parts of me where I'm like, this does not seem believable. I'm, I'm having a hard time being convinced that he just needed a couple of nights or even one night. I can't remember what it was of just watching this video that, um, Laurent sent him and, and suddenly he's able to convince a whole room of people who have clearly been in the drug game for a while that what he's doing is, is legit and is, is, you know, an actual drug concoction. I don't know. Like that, that, that one I think was probably the least believable of the three cases, but Mm. it was one of the more fun cases to watch. Yeah, because you got to fake it till you make it, right? Yeah, that, that's li- this show is literally <laughs> the definition of fake it till you make it. Yeah. Um, just some small pieces that I picked out from this case. Um, with it taking place on the West Coast, I like how it avoids you know copyright by calling it inzy out <laughs> oh yeah um, but they even show like the planes flying overhead like they actually yeah. have at lax like i i've i've flown there many times we've we've been there once like mm-hmm. we saw those planes fly overhead it was kind of cool to sit there and be like holy shit wait we were there like that's like yeah at that actual real. <laughs> at that actual inzy out in and out location <laughs> um so yeah they, they obviously did their research there um the movie Razzie Rising, which was, I think, one of Casano's produced films. Um, I think that was meant to be a parody of, like, Steven Seagal films. That was great. <laughs> um, and then the, there's even, like, a small Japanese cinema Easter egg where, like, Edamame has this fascination with, like, capsule toys. And so one of the capsule toys he picks up is uh, it's Toshiro Mifune. Um, who's like I think a Japanese actor big in like samurai films with uh, Akira Kurosawa and he's in I think the Yojimbo outfit where I think he was keeping his arms inside of his um, I don't know if you call them robes but yeah small reference to Japanese cinema there which was um, pretty interesting and then another almost film reference with Bronx Tale with the whole Salazar side plot um, with Edamame seeing that like Salazar is this father who just wants to get out of the crime game or keep his son out of a life of crime. Um, and I think that it parallels with Edamame's own backstory where um, I think like Edamame's father was like a legitimate like or by the books lawyer. And then he ends up getting involved in a scandal. Um, Wasn't it like child trafficking or something really fucked up? Yeah. And I think like Edamame sees almost a similar thing with Salazar and his relationship with his son. Um, And so I guess not to kind of atone for his his own history, but he wants that son to like not go down the same path that he's going down now, right? Yeah, I so this first case definitely revolved around Edamura in terms of like character development. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, you know, like, I guess of the main characters, he's like the main character. Um, so we got a, a, a taste of his backstory and I love that he's able to strike a balance between living this con life and being what technically is considered a bad guy, um, while still being a good person. First, we see that with him wanting to, you know, pay the consequences for, for being a con artist and do his time in jail. And then I guess slight spoilers for the next two. Um, he helps Abigail despite some of the things that she's going through and her being mean to him. And then in the third case, um, he does that thing to help the, oh, I won't spoil it just yet, but he does that thing to help out the, the family that owns the inn. So he's always trying to do the right thing despite him living this, this technically bad life. Um, and one thing that I hope, and I don't know if they'll end up doing it, but one thing that I hope that they'll explore further 
is Edamora's dad. Like clearly mm-hmm. he's if he was willingly involved, he's obviously scummy because he wasn't involved with child trafficking, but we didn't really get closure on that part of his story. We got closure with his mother, sad story there because she she passes away, um, but we don't get closure when it comes to his father. And I would actually be interested to explore that further and to see how does he approach that, especially given the life that he's living now, which isn't exactly an honest life. Yeah, and, and to your point earlier, I think this show touches a lot upon um again truth authenticity and then uh, that that kind of gray morality almost like a paradox where again it these characters as we'll learn um are doing these very seedy scummy things but it's for a somewhat noble and virtuous purpose um and, While also putting yeah. a shitload of money in their own pocket. Right. I forgot what, I think the the, the earnings here was like a hundred million. Oh yeah, a hundred million dollars just from this first case. Um, but yeah, what I'm hoping to see, and again, we'll discuss the next two cases, but um, for future episodes is just more looking at, I don't know if like Edamami is just going to have this inner conflict of him being in this life as a con artist and whether he wants to get out and again whether we we get any closure with his the story with his father yeah because i feel like he's he's good at it and it's a means to you know make a living for him but i don't think he actually wants to be in this game Mm -hmm. i think it's just these are the cards he was dealt as a kid and this is what he's doing to get by but yeah i think he ultimately would want to to leave the con life um but before we move on on to the next uh case one last thing I want to say, those thick-ass accents when they were trying to speak English. I mean, oh, yeah. to be fair, it was honestly pretty good compared to a lot of other anime where they attempt to speak English, but it was still pretty jarring, and I um, I did appreciate how they just kind of paused and like broke the fourth wall, if you want to call it, and say, mm-hmm. look, for the rest of the show, everything that's in English, quote-unquote, is just going to be translated to Japanese, and I'm like, okay, that's... That's a, a just right to the point kind of way of, of making that transition. But hey, at least they tried and at least it wasn't too bad. Yeah, and that was probably one of the few criticisms I had of the show is just that particular scene where it was a weird transition from English to Japanese. And like I, I get what they were trying to establish. Um, and uh, they wanted just to convey that these are people of different backgrounds like Adamame is Japanese Laurent is is a Frenchman um, and so it's these different people of different backgrounds walks of life um, all participating in this very somewhat criminal activity but yeah just the the dialogue was a little unsettling at first um, and slight spoilers for Jojo part five but I think in that in in Jojo, they kind of handled it slightly better than I thought with this, where they were still speaking Japanese, like, but at one point, a character comments on um, another character's Italian. Uh, but yeah, again, that was like this was the only one of the few gripes I had with the show is just that language thing. And to add on to that, for the third case, which we'll get to, um, they use entirely different voice actors for the French parts. I mean, mm-hmm. Laurent's voice isn't even anywhere near the same when he speaks like one line of French. I was like, what the fuck was that? Like when he opened his mouth and said that one line of French, I was like, that doesn't even sound anywhere close to the Japanese voice actor. At least for Cynthia, yeah. they got somewhat close to her voice actor. Uh, but I just find it interesting that they they chose to have the voice actors attempt the English, but did not have them attempt the French, knowing that, to your point, like in other shows like JoJo Part 5, they still attempt the Italian, mm-hmm. even though they're Japanese native speakers. So that, I don't know, like I almost wish, even though it probably would have been really butchered and, and who knows, probably really bad, I would have still preferred that the Japanese voice actors attempted the French to the best of their abilities to just at least stay consistent. Yeah, and I think at one point in that case, um, even the, the Japanese actors for some of the side characters were still imitating a French accent through their Japanese. So 
Yeah. That I, I appreciate. That I yeah. thought it was great. Like, and the fact that we could even pick up on that mm-hmm. um, as, uh, you know, non-Japanese speakers, native English speakers, I thought that was really good. Like, they yeah. they hit it just right where, again, like, even a Western audience um, member can, can listen to that and be like, it sounds like they're trying to speak Japanese in a French way. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that was cool. I, I appreciated that. Mm-hmm. It's a very international show in that sense. <laughs> But uh, moving onwards uh, with case two, titled Singapore Sky, which takes place over five episodes. After a two-year prison stint, Edamame finds honest work as a mechanic, but learns that the job is a ruse to get him back in the employ of team confidence. Because just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. The team does a test run on a fixed gambling ruse in Las Vegas to help out an old friend of Shinshia's before heading to Singapore under the guise of an air racing team with Edamame as their ace mechanic. Their next targets are Clark and Sam Ibrahim, who have used their Pathfinder air race to cheat gamblers out of money with fixed races and boost Clark's popularity as an ace pilot. The scheme is intertwined with Krabby Abby's past as, a, as an Iraqi child soldier coming back to haunt her, Alongside the story of disabled pilot Lewis Muller, whose days as an air racer were cut short when he rebelled against Samnarefu's fixed races. Krabby Abby advances through the tournament with her S-tier flying skills in the hopes of facing off against Clark in the finals. Eventually, Team Confidence creates an underground casino and gets Edamame to convince Samnarefu to partake in their luxurious fixed bets. The team enlists Lewis's help with the scheme as a form of payback against Samnarefu, but he's nearly offed by Krabby Abby because of his involvement in the Iraq War until Edamame intervenes. On the day of the finals, Edamame convinces Samnarefu to bet everything he has on Clark, a whopping $25 million, while secretly intending to sabotage Clark's plane. However, in order to bring all the dangling plot threads together, Edamame decides not to sabotage the plane and secretly has Lewis fly Krabby Abby's plane with apologies to Krabby Abby, in order to properly race against Clark one last time. Get it? Lewis and Clark? It's like a pun or something. <laughs> Sam Rafu is tricked into believing that Krabby Abby wins the race. Once he realizes this and goes out for con artist blood, however, the team narrowly escapes his wrath. So before we dive into this case, let me just say, this is the one where I really started to pick up on the whole, this was produced by Netflix, this is for a Western audience. There's some agenda pushing here. I mean, clearly the the backstory for for Abigail is what it is. Um, Lewis is who he is, and he did what he did. But the way they went about it and his motivation, saying you know I was just doing my job, blah blah blah. I don't know. There's some agenda kind of infused in here, and this is something that took me out of the show a little bit. Um, again, not surprised that it happened in an anime produced by Netflix, but it's there and that's all I'm going to say about it and we'll move on. With that said though, this one I thought was really uh, a very fun case. It was like a, a very interesting balance of like a lot of fun, a lot of action and a lot of like heartbreak and like reality that, that Abigail has to go through and has to go through alone. Um, so this one to me, I, I don't know if it was my favorite case, but I really enjoyed watching it. Not so much for the, the scheme itself, but just everything else that was going on around it. See, for me, I want to say this is probably my least favorite of the three cases so far. Um, to go back to what you're saying about what you were saying about Abby's story. Um, it, it's, I think they were like trying to make it like a very big reveal um especially with her connection with lewis but i didn't necessarily agree with the way it like their sense of closure just tied up neatly in a bow at the end because all you know like all that built up frustration on both ends um it concludes with him saying like a very like very quiet sorry to her and you know like with all that kind of pent-up frustration whatever whatever your thoughts are on that, that, that whole, um, event in history, like you can't just let that all go away with a very simple, like apology. Um, so that's why I thought it was that for them to tie up the story that way, it didn't seem as, I guess, authentic as it should have been. Or maybe as like fulfilling. Right. I, I agree. I think 
so on the one hand i did like it in just the sense that it shows the power of apology and that mm. no matter the situations that someone comes from or what's happened to them there's always um there's always a way to forgive somebody if they truly want that forgiveness and are truly sorry for what they've done mm -hmm. um but other than that i agree i think like it was just way too convenient way too easy way too like okay everything's great now like we just put you through this like we just dragged you as the the audience member through this like very sad very like um intense storyline for abby and then it's just all done I think what would have been better is we didn't even have to, we wouldn't have had to see any of it, but if Abby and Lewis took some time after the race and like, they basically hinted that they talked, they sat down and they talked and they, they tried to understand each other so that they could both grow and move on from, from everything that had happened. Mm -hmm. Um, even if, again, it, we, we did, we wouldn't have had to see any of it as, as the audience just imply that it happened. That would have been more satisfying to me because at least in the background, we would have known, that there was more of a, a real conversation, a real um, attempt at mutual understanding. Which is odd because you do kind of see that in the next case, which we'll, we'll, we'll talk about. Um, but yeah, I guess the other thing, the one thing I did like about this case was thematically, like there's a subtle commentary about like, can you find happiness in a routine life? And just using the play, like, because obviously this is a case all about like air races and planes um using the plane as a metaphor or i guess the propeller of the plane as a metaphor of like freeing yourself from your obligations your life's worries of your monotony which i think like you saw that with lewis like even though he had sustained injuries from his last race like he's willing to he is yearning to get back into that seat to to actually go back to being himself again because um, obviously he's been weighed down not just with the injuries but like of his uh, of the memories of, of the war um, or even in Abby's case like her trying to find closure um, or like using the whole air race as a, a way to just wanting to die um, but yeah that was one thing I appreciated about this case is again there's th those metaphors and just that that theme of again finding happiness and being free from your from your life's worries. Well, going back to what you said about her just wanting to die, I I thought that was super, um, I don't know, like not intriguing. I can't find quite the right word for it, but just something about it was very like captivating to me. And like, damn, like she's going through some stuff. Because honestly, up until this point, I thought Abby was a very very flat character. Mm -hmm. I'm like, she's just your typical hard ass bitch who's mean to the to the nice guy and. Blah, blah blah she's just there to be like a powerful chick or whatever she's fine but i'm not super interested in her and then they started to explore her backstory more and even then i was still kind of like meh about her until the end really kind of like those last moments of her kind of going through her arc um but yeah i thought that was a, an interesting concept like when he said that when lauren said that said that i was like what the fuck okay and i think more so what what really kind of struck a chord with me with this whole she wants to die piece is less about her and more about Laurent. The fact that he knew that and the fact that he knew that she was going through some stuff, whether or not he knew the specifics, the fact that he just knew in general that she was going through some shit and still pushed to have her fly the plane and make this scheme happen just so that they could earn some money made me really dislike Laurent. Like I'm at this point now <laughs> where I'm kind of conflicted about him. I'm like, yeah, he's, he's good at what he does and he's kind of the ringleader with all this, but he is kind of a, a piece of shit. Like having like he's using people. Yeah. Like he, he doesn't care. I mean, he, I mean, he literally knows that she wants to die. Like she, mm -hmm. that he, he said that as a matter of fact to Edamora and Edamora questions that and, and clearly is bothered by that. And Laurent just acts like it's like whatever. Like it's it's just whatever. And to a certain degree, Cynthia too. Like she she's aware and she's maybe a little bit more sensitive to it, but she's still going along with the plan and she's not really there for Abby. She's just there to get the money at the end of the day. So with Cynthia Cynthia and Laurent, I was kind of like, man, this this makes me dislike them a, a, a pretty hefty amount. Yeah, but um, I guess going back to Abby, like, I think with this case, I under I started to understand like you were saying like she was a, she's a, been a pretty flat character um, up until these 
uh, the episodes of this case. Um, and I think that her flat personality um, or like bitter personality is explained by the backstory that we're introduced to in this arc. Um, so to your point about Laurent kind of using her almost like morbidly, we'll probably, I'm hoping we'll probably get an explanation for why he, he acts this way with the second half of this, of this season. Um, almost like a payoff, I guess. Yeah, I, I, I can see that. I mean, Laurent is still a fun character to watch. Like he's got this deep, dark secret. Like they mm-hmm. hinted at it a little bit. Um, but it clearly causes him to always have his guard up. He's too confident too often. Um, like there's, he just cannot be that cool. He cannot be that level headed. He cannot be that, um, he can't, you can't just have everything going for him. Suave. Yeah. Like <laughs> something about it is like, this is a facade. Like there's something going on here and we're going to find out about that. And to a certain degree, Cynthia is kind of like that as well. She's also trying to keep her confidence up. But as we see in the third case, she's not as good at, at doing that, at least consistently as Laurent is. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I'm sure there is something that will lend to the fact that he doesn't seem like he cares about Abby or anyone else's well being, But even if there is that explanation, is it really going to justify him basically saying, I don't care if Abby does die as long as this scheme gets pulled off? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Um, some other smaller things I pulled away from this case. Uh, I think it was Laurent who, called, who used the term scripted entertainment, which I thought was the best way to describe each of Team Confidence's schemes. Almost like uh wrestling <laughs> yeah basically. um another point is i forgot what episode it was but they start playing this it's almost like a knockoff of uh, free falling um when they're like flying the planes and it was just very jarring which i get it's they probably use these like unknown songs from these unknown artists so they don't have to pay like a huge royalty fee but at some points it just sounds like plagiarism of like the mainstream song that we're all used to. Yeah. That and like some of the other songs too, especially in the third case, since you're bringing this up mm-hmm. um, to me, like they just don't fit. I'm like, you've got this whole like con artist espionage sixties vibe in the opening and the ending and all of case one. And then case two and case three, you introduce these very different songs that do not seem cohesive with this the show in general i'm like ugh, like i just i i did not like them i i thought that at the very least like if you're gonna have new music introduced especially with vocals in it that it should at least match the style of the rest of the show because then i felt like Mm -hmm. in those moments that those songs were playing i felt like we were watching a different show it just completely pulled me out of the vibe that that great pretender kind of had already established yeah, I think the song choices should have been more in line of like uh, what you'd find in a James Bond or 007 film. Like, you know, Adele's, what was it, Skyfall, or even Sam Smith's, what, what was it? I forgot the title of it, but yeah, I would think music more along those lines from those kinds of films would have suited this a little bit better. But yeah, case two, we get Free Falling Knockoff. Last thing is, if you haven't already noticed, the voice actor for Sam, you pointed this out, I think, in the last episode we saw um, of the case, is Polnareff from JoJo. Yeah, and I only realized that when he started yelling in, like, the <laughs> the last episode of this case, like, when he realized that he got swindled and he was, like, yelling at his guards to go find everybody. When he started screaming, I'm like, that's Polnareff. Like, that is Polnareff. I know this, like that is, I mean, cause Polnareff does nothing but scream mm-hmm. <laughs> in part, in, in part three and you know, yeah, that's all I'll say, but he doesn't do anything but scream. So when he started yelling, Sam, uh, I was like, this is, it's Polnareff. Yeah. So I guess technically a Frenchman got conned by a Frenchman. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> and Laurent's voice actor is, um, Eraserhead from, Oh, that's right. Um, from my, my hero, hero yeah. and who is also, um, Abakio? Yeah. 
And yeah. he's also Abakio in Jojo Part Five. Yeah, we just I love when when you could just pick up immediately on on a great voice actor who's played some really awesome characters. Um, so yeah, I, I get I get excited about that. Yeah, I think in the next case or case three, we'll we'll get more of those cameos that you will recognize from other anime. Hell yeah, we will. Because <laughs> I'm sure like Netflix wanted to pull all the stops in terms of the voice actors that were chosen for the show or for the Japanese dub. Um, and yeah, speaking of case three, the final case, which is entitled Snow of London, which takes place over four episodes in Nice, France, Edamame finds work at a faux Japanese restaurant and resides in a boarding house with a painting resembling the works of Spanish painter Sergio Montoya. One day, a brash restaurant patron leaves a scathing in-person Yelp review, and Edamame seeks to slap him with a little bit of karma. Seeing that the boarding house owners are planning to close up shop because of their debt, Edamame enlists the help of Shinshia and Krabby Abbey to sell their faux Montoya painting to the restaurant critic for 25,000 euros and pay off their debt. Shinshia, however, realizes that the penguin-looking-ass critic is none other than James Coleman, the so-called 007 of the art world who is conveniently tied to her past. The penguin paint patron buys the painting, which turns out to be an authentic Montoya work valued at 20 million euros, titled Snow of London, or more appropriately, Yoda Chilling on Hoth. And it is then that a tipsy Shinshia decides that Team Confidence's next scheme is to travel to London and bankrupt his art-appraising ass. We learn that the Penguin Paint patron is embroiled in an affair with Farrah Brown, a fashion executive whom he manipulates to house his most valued art acquisitions. We also also learn more about Shinshia's past as an aspiring actress and her relationship with a struggling artist, Thomas Meyer, whose skill in replicating famous works caught the Penguin Paint patron's eye and landed him a job in scamming unassuming buyers into purchasing his knockoff paintings, souring his and Shinshia's romance. We also, also, also learn that Saint Laurent buys the Montoya painting at an auction for a cool 30 million euros, pissing off the penguin paint patron who wanted it for himself. But Saint Laurent invites him to an underground auction to try and buy it back. Shinchia reconnects with Thomas the Tank Artist, who is a meager 2 million euros in debt after buying all his forgeries to keep them out of the public eye, and convinces him to paint a fake replica of Snow of London that they can auction off to the Penguin paint patron. At the auction, Shinchia engages in a bidding war over the pa- painting with the Penguin paint patron until he tops out at 100 million euros. However, his sugar mama Farah cuts ties and funds with him after learning of his manipulation and opens a public exhibit for her collection. Later, the painting is returned to the boarding house, but Edamame reveals that it is actually Thomas the Tank Artist's rendition to showcase his skill and craft. Shinchia has one last meeting with Thomas the Tank Artist for a bit of closure and chides Saint Laurent for seeming to have concocted this whole mess as he twirls around in his fingers a ring named Dorothy. Where to even begin with this case? There's a lot going on in this case. Um, and it was, I think the most boring but <laughs> so no okay no let me let me finish it was the uh, most boring case but one that i still really really love to watch like i think the case itself is like okay yeah like that's interesting and stuff mm-hmm. but again similar to the last case everything going on around it really made it for me like, i i just enjoyed watching it cuz everything that was tied into the case and and how it all kind of came together was super super interesting um and as you mentioned earlier Thomas is voiced by none other than the same voice actor for Kakyoin in Jojo Part 3. So that was really cool. Um, I was going to say that I didn't realize Cynthia is another, not as well known, but she is Nana Shimura, which is All Might's mentor in My Hero. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. I, I didn't realize that Cynthia was English until this this case. I was like, what is she? I thought she was French as well for some reason. Um, but it didn't click for me until this case when we realized that she's she's English. The sh- uh, the, she does speak French um, when they are in France, but yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, I think that's why I was like, just I just assumed that she was French, like Laurent. Um, but yeah, so she's, she's English. She's dating Kakyoin, or at least she was dating Kakyoin. <laughs> um, and I think what was really i don't know 
kind of a kind of like how the the tables turn or how the the turn, the turn tables, tables um with this story that that was a, a very f- fresh take on the ending was the fact that Cynthia became what she despised of Thomas when he started to mm-hmm. work under um Coleman um she she was upset that he basically was was being dishonest and and doing things just for the money and became somebody totally different and then she literally becomes that same way. And then when they get back together to to kind of catch up after so many years, he comments and says, you know, you're, you're different now. And they don't end up being together because, yeah, just so much has changed between the two of them. I don't know. I was kind of mm-hmm. sad by that ending. But I was also like, it's it was interesting. Because I would have been, it would have felt weird if Cynthia suddenly became her old self again and then somehow just exited the con life. Right. And I just realized this, but she- in her backstory, it's implied that she wants to become like an actress, and I guess she fulfilled that in a way because yeah. she does have to act in all of these these horrendous but virtuous schemes. Um, but yeah, I think for the same reasons that you mentioned, like this is probably one of my most fa- this is probably my favorite case out of the three, just because of all that like poetic justice and these parallel stories and i think the concept or the theme here is again they explore the concept of authenticity you obviously like physically with the art and then um not spiritual like i guess personality wise with again with thomas and cynthia being the, the focal point of that um and I had to research if Sergio Montoya was a real artist, but spoiler alert, he's not. Oh. <laughs> but yeah, the show, I guess, does some pretty good world building in that sense to establish him as this like historical character who who builds into that theme again. Um, because I think they, it mentions like in one of the episodes it mentions like he often copied other artists works until he discovered his own style and that runs parallel with Thomas's own journey again having thrived in his skills or like in his career as making these like mock paintings of other famous works um but then realizing like i think it was at a museum where he sees a kid who's trying to draw the the fake painting that he created like realizing the error of that um and just hoping to start again and take that away from the world even though he's riddling himself with debt by buying back those paintings um yeah i just loved all of that all of the plot just building around that concept again of of authenticity one thing that I hated about this um, this case, and it's nothing really related to the case itself, but it was um, Abby's character that she was playing as the what do you call them? Like the the art exhibit. What, like, what's the name for that person who like? Not a patron, but no, like a not a connoisseur, like a but curator like curator. Yeah, like the art exhibit curator. I guess you could call her. Um, because up until this point, every character, quote unquote, that Abby's um, played in these schemes has always had like that rough edge to them um, because that's kind of who she is as a person. And that's really kind of what her strength is when it comes to this whole con game. But then she she's just like this really, I don't know, she's like a completely different person. And I guess that lends to her ability to be an effective con artist, but it was just so far like left field for who Abby actually is that I was like, I hated every time her her fake character was on screen. I, I thought it was very nice in the beginning when um, Edomura and Abby um, kind of reunited and then she started warming up to him, obviously because he cared so much about her and was like the only person who wanted to help her during the last case. So seeing her kind of like warm up a little bit was nice, but she still had that edge to her, right? Like she was still cold to him on certain levels, but then she goes into this character as this fake art curator. And I don't know, I just, I couldn't stand watching it. I'm like, this is like a totally different character. Like this is nowhere near what Abby would be. And I just did not feel Abby vibes from, from that. Yeah. I guess to that point, it felt like the, 
writers just wanted to shoo her in um, as to, to make her just do something in this case. Yeah, like they're just giving her. Yeah, exactly. It just felt like mm-hmm. they're giving her something to do. Like she really didn't fit. She did not play a major part. Um, like it didn't feel like a major part in this whole scheme. And and yeah, like I would have just rather heard been like a cold art curator or something. Like I don't know. It just it was so different. It was like very like I don't know. It was it was weird. I didn't like it. Yeah. Um, and I got some small things I pulled out from these episodes. We talked about Thomas being Kakuin. Even the, I, I enjoyed the small reference to, I think, Thomas the Tank Engine. Because I think Edamami's looking for Thomas in a bar. And then, um, I don't know if they're like loan sharks or people that were hired by loan sharks. Catch wind of him looking for Thomas. And then, like, Edamami tries to back off. He's like, oh, no, I'm talking about the train. <laughs> <laughs> Which, it fits because Thomas the Tank Engine actually, I think, originated in... In Britain as a show. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Um I like the misspelling of ramen in the beginning. Oh, yeah, the rest yeah, the ramen restaurant. And the character Chris actually cameos in she was from a previous episode where um what was it? The beginning of the Singapore Sky Arc in Las Vegas where Cynthia helps up the character named Chris um get out of her debt or whatever. But she reappears here as her former uh, co-worker and waitress. I like right? how they brought that full circle because yeah. they, they just dropped that in out of nowhere. And she was like, happy birthday, Chris. And I'm like, who the fuck is Chris? But mm-hmm. I thought it was more just a way to show that Cynthia, um, like Edamora, has like a, a good heart at her core. But then they actually brought a full circle and was like, oh, like without it being obvious either. Yeah. They just were like, here's her co-worker, Chris. And you're like, oh, wait a minute. This is that lady from from earlier. Um, so yeah, I thought that was a, a nice way to kind of reintroduce her character. Yeah. Again, a little subtle world building there. Um, and then obviously in France, there is a Beauty and the Beast reference where you see I think, the rose that was encased, encased in glass at the bed and breakfast where Edamame stays. Um, so yeah, nice subtle nods to other... Uh, other films and and series. But my big question at the end of this was, where the hell did the team get all the paintings for their fake auction? Oh, yeah, (laughs) that's a good question. I I get, like, they're probably pros at stealing money, so they're probably pros at stealing art just for this one occasion. But, man, that's a lot of paintings to steal <laughs> that is yeah that's another thing that kind of like pushes that the very fine line of believability like could they really have pulled this off blah, blah, blah. And, and one thing too um so a couple of comments i guess now that we've kind of touched on all three cases what i'd like to see in the next case or next couple of cases the, the rest of the series is less of things working out so perfectly like yeah mm-hmm. they have hiccups yeah things kind of people go rogue things don't quite go according to plan but it's just, it all like 90% of the time just works out great for them. And I'd love to see them really be like pushed to the limit. Like here's a, a, a scheme that's about to fuck over everything. And they need to come up with a very clever way to keep it all together and to make it happen. Uh, I'm sure Lauren will still keep his confidence throughout the whole thing. But I would like to see something like that. The other thing I'd like to see with these last or the last case, I'm not sure how many more there are going to be, is a... Uh, an antagonist that breaks this formula that we've seen. So every antagonist has been a powerful male character who disrespects women in some way. Mm. So the first one, that Harvey Weinstein character, um, they show that like he just uses women, that he would push drugs on on models or actresses and stuff, and they would like OD and like kill you know kill themselves or whatever. Um, the second, the brothers who um, have the the air race. Um, they just use women as, as objects and like Sam was like over the top, like women, blah, blah, or, or just, uh, things or whatever. I'm like, okay, calm down, dude, like chill. And then the third one, um, Coleman just uses that fashion mogul, um, for her money and for her ability to pretty much get those paintings for him. So I'm like, this mold needs to be broken. Like I need to see a different villain quote unquote i need them to i need them to go after somebody who breaks that formula because if that's what we're gonna get for the next cases i'm like i i need to i need to see something different or i'm probably not going to be as captivated 
Yeah, I actually didn't notice like all the antagonists of these cases. Um, yeah, shared that same personality. Uh, but I agree with you on that point where I think the team has built up too much plot armor. Um, and like you said, they've they've incurred too much success without facing any real challenges. Um, so yeah, I, I think in this sense, they kind of need uh, an Infinity War-like event that levels their playing field. And along those same lines, they need a, like a Thanos type of villain who who isn't like the rest of them and kind of throws them for a loop. Um, and yeah, that's just, that was one other gripe I had with the show is just that like these, these schemes play off too successfully in the end. And it's, it's again, it's a nice payoff, but I think that's what, that was a problem I had. I mentioned this in a, in the Gurren Lagan uh, podcast is like the characters need to face like a real challenge instead of them getting to overcome these obstacles so easily. Yeah, it's almost like they have unlimited resources, unlimited manpower, unlimited brain power to be able to come up with on the fly um, every possible like alternative or solution to these problems so quickly. It's yeah, it's it's a little bit too convenient. Um, and yeah, I agree. I think that. They need to have some real challenges in the, the next coming cases. I, I imagine maybe one of the big ones is probably going to be Laurent's case. Like, mm-hmm. Not his case in particular, but the one that really dives into his backstory and is probably going to be more centered around him. I would imagine like that would maybe the one where we get a little more conflict, a little more challenge for the group. Mm-hmm. But who knows? We'll see. And I think that's the natural progression because, again, the Los Angeles case focused on Edamame. Um, Singapore focused on Abby, London focused on Cynthia. So, yeah, naturally the last play, uh, last case I don't think is going to focus on Kudo, like Je- uh, Edamame's Japanese friend, but rather on Laurent. Um, and to touch upon like the last scene of the last case um, with Laurent holding that ring um, that he named Dorothy, it gave me like Yoshikage Kira vibes <laughs> from, <laughs> from JoJo. Um, did he murder this chick and take the <laughs> ring or something but yeah I, and i think that's where we mentioned before like in the ending credits you see allusions to what could be Laurent's story um so i'm i think that's probably what we'll see in in one of the following cases which i think there's actually only one more case that they delve into for the second half for all those episodes it's like yeah. 23 episodes total right yeah because i didn't i didn't read ahead but um some of the news articles articles were saying like it's it's there's a fourth case that comes out, um, so I think that's that fourth case is gonna be like really meaty, and will probably fi- hopefully fulfill a lot of what we're we're hoping for with the second half. I would love for Netflix to just release this stuff at the same time. Like, obviously they've got the show, and mm-hmm. every other I mean not like literally every other, but. Most other anime are simulcast now, um, like the the exact moment that they premiere, whether it's on Hulu or Netflix or Crunchyroll or whatever. So the fact that Netflix owns this material, they, they own this show, and they, I don't know why, but chose to premiere it in Japan first for both halves of the season um, and then premiere it in the U.S. after the fact. I don't know. To me, that was kind of annoying, um, but we'll we'll binge it and try to avoid spoilers as soon as it premieres late November. Yeah, so we shall see. But overall, I'm enjoying the show. I think it's great. It's different. It's definitely one of the the stronger anime to come out this season. Um, and yeah, looking forward to, to talking more about it when the rest of it comes out. Yeah, same. I've, I've, I've enjoyed this show a lot so far. Again, it gives me those Cowboy Bebop vibes because, again, you have a ragtag group of people coming together, doing some scheming. Um, and I want to give some compliment to Wit Studio, who animated this. Um, they're of Attack on Titan fame, although they're not doing the final season anymore. Wait, what? I didn't even know that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a different studio that's tackling the final season. Did they do all the other seasons? They did. Oh, yeah. man. All right, well, this so, is going to be interesting. But yeah, um, they animated Great Pretender, um, and it, it was a weird art style. Just It takes some time to get used to, but yeah, I'm also looking forward to what they have in store for the second half, and 
for the case that's inevitably going to center around Laurent and why he's so suave but so creepy. (laughs) And so that wraps up episode 20 of Strictly Anime on Great Pretender. We'd like to thank you all for tuning in and for being with us for these past 20 episodes. Your support has been greatly appreciated and we hope you stick around with us longer (laughs) yeah thank you so much for listening as a reminder you can follow us on twitter at strictly series and on instagram at the strictly series we encourage you to message us with your thoughts on the anime that we review or any feedback that you have for our podcast and as always stay safe stay healthy stay weeb As a reminder, you can follow us on Twitter at Strictly Series. <laughs> Where? <laughs> I said it weird. Um, let me restart that. <laughs>